right, Community of Faith, how are we doing this morning? You made it through the rain, right? How are we doing at home, those of you watching online? <laughs> I heard something. We're glad you're joining us, too. You know, uh, these last couple of months have been really difficult months for my family, especially for my wife, Laura, um, as her beautiful, sweet mother, my mother-in-law, Linda, passed away. And it's been a, a just really a tough couple of months as she was really struggling and suffering. And, uh, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about that because these trials, they come to all of us, don't they? If you're not in one right now, you're gonna be in one. And it's important that we understand, we've been talking about the words of Jesus and Jesus has some really powerful things to let us know. And I'm excited uh, about getting to share that with you. I shared it, sweet Linda, my mother-in-law's funeral. Um, what I believe is a great statement of faith. It's by Jane Marcheski. Now, when you hear this statement of faith, maybe it doesn't sound like what you always think traditionally of as a great statement of faith because, you know, we like to always say, you know, I believe and I'm strong and I'm not faltering, but really what faith is, it's walking with God even in the midst of the darkness and doubt, isn't it? Listen to what she says. She, she entitled this blog post, God is on the bathroom floor. Jane Marcheski says, I don't remember most of autumn because I lost my mind late in the summer, and for a long time after that, I wasn't really in my body. I was a light bulb buzzing somewhere far. After the doctor told me I was dying, and after the man I married said he didn't love me anymore, when my brain finally caught up with it all, something broke. I spent three months propped against the wall. At night, I could not sleep, so I laid in the tub like an insect, staring at my reflection in the shower knob. I vomited until I was hollow. I rolled up under my robe on the tile. The bathroom floor became my place to hide, where I could scream and be ugly, where I could sob and spit and eventually doze off, happy to be asleep, even with my head on the toilet. I've had cancer three times now, and I've barely passed 30. There are times when I wonder what I must have done to deserve such a story. I fear sometimes that when I die and meet with God that he's going to say I disappointed him or offended him or failed him. Maybe he'll say, I just never learned the lesson or that I wasn't grateful enough. But one thing I know for sure is this. He can never say that he did not know me. I am God's downstairs neighbor, banging on the ceiling with a broomstick. I show up at his door every day, sometimes with songs, sometimes with curses. I've called him a cheat and a liar, and I meant it. I've told him I wanted to die, and I meant it. Tears have become the only prayer I know. Prayers roll over my nostrils and drip down my forearms. <clears throat> they fall to the ground as I reach for him. These are the prayers I repeat night and day, sunrise, sunset. Call me bitter if you want to. That's fair. Count me among the angry, the cynical, the offended, the hardened. But count me also among the friends of God. 
for I have seen him in rare form. I have felt his exhale, laid in his shadow, squinted to read the message he wrote for me in the grout. I'm sad too. If an explanation would help, he would write me one. I know it. But maybe an explanation would only start an argument between us. And I don't want to argue with God. I just want to lay in a hammock with him and trace the veins in his arms. I see him in the dusty sunlight that outlines the trees. I see him in my mother's crooked hands, in the blanket my friend left for me, in the harmony of the wind chimes. It's not the mercy that I asked for, but it's mercy nonetheless. And I learned a new prayer. Thank you. It's a prayer I don't mean yet, but I'm going to repeat it until I do. Call me cursed. Call me lost. Call me scorned. But that's not all. Call me chosen. Call me blessed. Call me sought after. Call me the one who God whispers his secrets to. Even on days when I'm not so sick, sometimes I go lay on the mat in the afternoon light to listen for him. I know it sounds crazy. I can't really explain it. But God is in there, even now. I've heard it said that some people can't see God because they won't look low enough. And it's true. Look lower. God is on the bathroom floor. Are you going through a trial of belief? It's going to come a time for all of us. The great saints of old called it the dark night of the soul. You don't understand God. You don't understand what's going on. It's not some piddling little annoyance, but it's a full-blown crisis, a time when your very understanding of who God is and what he's about, what his character is, is being challenged. You know, Jesus has some really powerful words for us about this. And that's what I love about him. Jesus was always saying, hey, if you want to follow me, I need you to count the cost. He said, in this world, you're going to have trouble, but take my courage. I've overcome the world. And he has some things to tell us about what faith looks like and what true belief really is. One day, as Jesus was telling stories to the crowd, he would tell them stories about heavenly things. It was hard for them to understand. He'd try to make it so that it was clear. And he would use the, the things that were around them in their day, farmers and things like that. So on one day, he was talking about, he said, a man went out to sow some seed. And he sowed some seed. And he talks about all these different kinds of ground that he sowed seed on. One was rocky ground. And rocky ground was basically this, this soil that had about an inch of topsoil. And he said that the, the little plant sprang up and it was so beautiful and joyful. But then the sun came out and scorched it and it withered and it died. Now, the disciples that were walking with him, his 12 guys, they were just like you and me. They, they didn't really understand what he was trying to say. We probably wouldn't have got it either. So... They said, tell us what you mean about all these soils. And when he got to the rocky soil, he says this in Matthew 13, 
verses, verse 20 and following, he says this. As for what was sown on thin, rocky soil, this is the one who hears the word and at once welcomes and accepts it with joy. Yet it has no real root in him, but is temporary. It's inconstant. It lasts but a little while. And when affliction or trouble or persecution comes on account of the word, at once he is caused to stumble. He is repelled and begins to distrust and desert him whom he ought to trust and obey and then falls away. What Jesus is trying to tell us, and he says in other places, these dark, difficult trials, tragedies, of life. I've heard people say they're given to us so that we can prove to God how much we love him. But I don't think that's true. Don't you think our omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing God already knows your heart completely? He knows how much you love him. So if these trials aren't to show God how much we love him, what are trials and testings about? What if these trials this dark, difficult time is to show your faith, but not to God, to you, to you. Wouldn't it be a great tragedy if you lived your whole life thinking you loved God when you actually don't love him at all? Jesus said there's gonna be many on that final day that say, Lord, Lord, we loved you. We believed in you, and he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. That's got to be the greatest tragedy of all. In his classic book, Religious Affections, written in the 1700s, Jonathan Edwards makes this observation. He says, sometimes a person will mistakenly think that he loves God when truly he is only grateful for God's blessings. But that isn't real love, Edwards argues. He says, it's only self-interest. Ladies, have you heard about the water test? I'll give you some real practical stuff right here, all right? You see, back in the days of old, I mean, way back, hundreds of years ago, jewelers, they had no way to determine if a diamond was a, a real diamond or not. They didn't have all the little things to look through. They didn't have all the tests that they could do. So they had this one test. It was the water test. And I didn't know this, but now I do. If you take two stones and one of them's fake and one of them's a real diamond, and a lot of times you'll look at them in the light and they both just look almost identical. But if you'll dip them under water, submerge them in water, the stone that isn't a diamond goes flat. And the stone that is a diamond continues to shine and to sparkle. So ladies, you know, at that romantic dinner, pops the question, pulls out the ring. You got water right there at the table. Just take that ring before you ever put it on your finger and just drop it in there, right? See how practical these sermons are? Here's the thing. So many people who might be confident of their sparkling faith, find that when it goes under the deep waters of sorrow and affliction and trial and tragedy, it loses all its brilliance, showing itself 
to be not faith at all, but an imitation. While on the other hand, the, the true believer, the true child of God shines as a genuine diamond in the deep waters of adversity. So are you having a crisis of belief this morning? Someone said about an acquaintance that I knew that last tragedy, that last trial just destroyed his faith. And I said, no, that's not true according to the Bible because trials can't destroy our faith. The Bible teaches that trials don't destroy our faith. They only test our faith. Real faith will never be destroyed in a trial. 1 Peter 1.7 says, These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. George Whitfield, who was one of the great pioneer pastors of early America, he said this, All trials are for two ends. One, that we may be better acquainted with the Lord Jesus. And two, that we may be better acquainted with our own hearts. You see, difficult times are going to come to all of us. Not understanding God, what he's about, why he's allowed this, is going to come to all of us. We live in this broken world. And the first thing that our enemy, the evil one, tries to do is to say, God is not good. He started it with Eve in the Garden of Eden. God's not good. He's holding out on you. He won't let you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because he knows you will be like him. And she fought that hook, line, and sinker. And our very first forefathers fell on their face. We've been falling on our face ever since. But difficult times are going to come. And that temptation, God is not good. We've been singing all these songs about how good he is, and I'm going to trust him in the midst of all of these things. You know, Jesus, he was always saying, hey, if you're going to follow me, I need you to count the cost. It's going to cost you. I want you to hear this morning the story of the guy that I call the almost apostle. You know, when Jesus went around, he would say every once in a while to somebody, come, follow me. He wanted them to be one of his disciples, an apostle. He said that to this man, but he didn't. the man didn't do it. And we're going to find out a little bit about why, because Jesus was laying out a cost, I think. In Mark 10... Verse 17 and following, let me just read it to you. As Jesus went out into the street, a man came running up, greeted him with great reverence and asked, good teacher, what must I do to get eternal life? In the parallel accounts in the other gospels, this is in all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It tells us some other things about this man. It says that he was young. If you look at the the Greek word, it means he was in his 20s probably, maybe late 20s. 27, 28, he was rich. And the word that's used for rich is really, really rich, not just kind of rich. And he was a ruler. He was a ruler of some sort somewhere in the Jewish life. Uh, He was one of their rulers. 
And he asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to get eternal life? Listen to what Jesus replies. Why are you calling me good? No one is good, only God. Now, at first, that seems kind of confusing. Like, I thought Jesus was God. He is. What he's really trying to say here, he's saying, you don't really understand goodness and badness. You don't really understand holiness and sin. You see, there's only one in the universe that's truly good, always, all the time, and that's God. So if you're saying, I'm good, you must be saying, I'm God, because only God is good. And it kind of sets the stage for the rest of it. And then Jesus goes on, he says, well, you know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't cheat, honor your father and mother. The young man said, teacher, I have from my youth kept them all. Jesus looked him hard in the eye and loved him. And he said, there's just one thing left. Go sell whatever you own and give it to the poor. All your wealth will then be heavenly wealth and come follow me. The man's face clouded over. This was the last thing he expected to hear, and he walked off with a heavy heart. He was holding on tight to a lot of things and not about to let go. So interesting. It says he walked off with a heavy heart. The words heavy heart, it's really just one word in the Greek, lupeo, and it literally means grieved, deeply grieved, and I think that's the best translation of it. Let me tell you why. There's a place where the same Greek word is applied to Jesus. Matthew records in his gospel that in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before Jesus died, that Jesus was praying and crying, and he sweat until even blood began to come out of his pores. That's some serious stress. Scientists tell us it takes huge stress for that to happen. And it says that Jesus was Lupeo, deeply grieved. Why? Because he knew that he was about to experience the ultimate dislocation. He was about to experience the ultimate disorientation. He was about to lose the joy of his life, the core of his identity. He was going to lose his father for those moments on the cross when he became sin for us. Jesus was losing his spiritual center, his very self. So when Jesus called this young man to give up his money, the man started to lupeo, the same word, grieve, because money was for him what the father was for Jesus. It was the center of his identity. To lose his money would have been to lose his security, to lose himself. You see, it's one thing to have God as an example, as a mentor, but if you want God to be your savior, you have to replace what you're already looking to as a savior with God. Everybody's got something. Think about it. What is it for you? If you want to be a Christian, of course you're going to repent of your sins, but after you've repented of your sins, you'll want to also 
Repent of how you have used the good things in your life to fill the place where God should be. If you want intimacy with God, if you want to get over this sense that something is missing, it'll have to become God that you love with all your heart and soul and strength and only God. See, this young man, he had done everything right, but something was still missing. He could tell, he could feel it. He could feel it. And, you know, if he would have asked any of the other religious rabbis, they would have said, no, you're doing the right things. Keep all the laws. That's what you do. Keep the laws of the Bible, and and you will know God. You will have eternal life. Let your good outweigh your bad, you know. Make sure that you try to do good things all the time. And and, and on the big heavenly scale, it'll tip your way, and, and you'll make it in. And that's not what Jesus said. That's not what it means to be a believer. You see how nuanced Jesus' reply is. But I want you to notice something else, and this is what changes everything, the framework of it all. Did you notice that Mark wrote as Jesus looked and talked with the rich young ruler? It says he looked intently, deeply into his eyes. That's what the other versions will say. And he loved him. He loved him. Now, what is that all about? Jesus was a loving person. He loved the people around him, but it never, hardly ever, like one or two times is all it says that he loved them. Jesus personally loved them, and it, and it brings it out in the scriptures for what reason? It's really rare to see it in the gospel narratives. Did Jesus love him for his potential leadership? Was it because of what the man said? No, I don't, I don't think so. See, Jesus at this point is about 31 years old. And he looks at this young man who's probably 28. And he identifies with him. He identifies with him completely. For you see, Jesus too is a rich young man. In fact, far richer than this young man could ever imagine or grasp. As wealthy as this young man was, Jesus' wealth was as far above him as Elon Musk's wealth is to me. And that's pretty far. Jesus has lived in the incomprehensible glory, the wealth, the love, the joy of being God for all of eternity past but he's already left that wealth behind him. Paul says that Jesus Christ was rich, but for our sakes, he became poor. Talk about really not selling it very hard, right? He was God, and he stepped out of that. He stepped down from all that it meant to rule the universe, to be the creator of the universe, And for our sakes, he became a man. And Jesus is getting ready to go into a trial, a sorrow, a grief, a poverty deeper than anyone has ever known. And Jesus says, I'm giving it all away. Why? As he looked at this young man, for you. And as he looks deeply into your eyes in the spirit realm this morning, he says, for you. I gave it all away. For you. 
If I gave away my big everything for you, can you give your little tiny everything away for me, to follow me? I won't ask you to do anything that I haven't already done. I'm the ultimate rich young ruler who has given away the ultimate everything to get you. Now I'm asking you to give away your tiny everything to get me. See, if we really understand that Jesus is the true rich young ruler of this story, because we talk about Jesus and the rich young ruler, but Jesus is the real rich young ruler here, it's going to change your attitude toward, well, everything, I think. Does what Jesus did for you, does it really move you? Does it amaze you? Does it make you weep that this God of the universe would step out of his glorious heaven and come to earth and die naked on a cross to take our place so that we could be redeemed, reborn, so that we could have a pathway opened so that we could know God and walk with him? Does Jesus' sacrifice for you from Godship to naked on a cross melt you? If you really get it, I mean, really, really get it this morning, it'll drain you of the belief that God isn't good, isn't fair, isn't right. It'll, it'll, it'll just drain that right out of you. The only way I know to counteract the power of everything else in your life is to see the ultimate rich young ruler who gave away everything to come after you, to rescue you, to love you, to know you. Jesus says, trust me. Know that I am good. Know that I, and in the light of the cross, even what you're going through, the deepest, darkest night of the soul, but look at the cross. He loves you. He's already proved it. Some of you this morning are going, Mark, you keep saying God is good, but the suffering makes no sense. I mean, it doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, where is God? What's going on? I've tried to make sense out of it. I've tried to ask God. I hear nothing. It's like he's a million miles away. This makes no sense. But you see, it only makes no sense because we don't yet see the reason God allows it. I'll give you an illustration. I made three new house keys this week. Um, I've got ADHD. I've told you that. So I lose about a house key a month. If you find one of mine, well, just come on over. We'll eat together, whatever. But they're all over the place. They don't even trust me with keys to the church anymore, you know? So that's why if you see me, like I'm trying to get out the door, does anybody have a key? I got to get out this door. So I made three new house keys this week. You know, that'll last me for the next three months at least. But... I want you to, to think about it with me. The making of a key would be a strange thing if you had never seen a lock. I mean, I was there, and there's like this awful grinding, and sparks are flying, and there's this burnt metal smell. It's just awful, and it's like, what are you doing to that poor key? Why are you damaging that key like that? What are you trying to accomplish with that little innocent key? just need to stop. It's too much. It's not right. There's no sense in it. 
But you see, then the maker of the key takes it to the lock in a hidden door, and he slides it into the lock, and it fits perfectly. Not one cut or grind has been without purpose. And he turns it, and ah, that hidden door opens onto the real forever everything. New, reborn, redone, right? He shows us that. All made new, all made right. God is up to something. God is fitting you for something. He's fitting you and me for something. And he knows how hard it is. And he cries with us. And he won't desert you as he does it, no matter what your feelings try to tell you. He is here. He is here. If you don't see him, look lower. He's here. He's down in the mire with us. He's down in the midst of it with us. You see, he is teaching us and working with us and growing us. This is like boot camp. Jesus said in Revelation, the one who overcomes, the one who walks through these trials, perseveres through them, they're going to sit on my throne with me, and they're going to rule and reign with me. That's what he's preparing you for. So it kind of turns things on its head, doesn't it? If you think about it, you know, you look over at someone's life, their life is easy. God's favor must be on them. Well, maybe you just totally misunderstood. Maybe you're one of the Navy SEALs. Your boot camp's going to be a whole lot harder than theirs. Maybe your job in heaven is a whole lot bigger, a whole lot more. See, don't think that just because life is easy that God's favor is on them. God's favor is on you in the trial, in the darkness. He's fitting us for something. Jane Marchewski, who wrote God is on the bathroom floor, died at age 32. In the years after being diagnosed with the metastatic cancer that destroyed her body and ultimately took her life, she changed her name to Nightbird. Like, what? That's kind of weird. Why Nightbird? In the weeks after her diagnosis and divorce, she'd been given a 2% chance to live, and she said, I kept having this recurring dream, or maybe it was real. My traumatized mind could hardly discern the difference, but she said, at my tiny bathroom window, deep in the night, when it was the darkest, these little songbirds would come and sit on the windowsill, and they would sing their hearts out in the dark with no proof of the dawn, but they still believed in the dawn, so they sang anyway. And she says, God, I know that you are good, so I will choose to sing even in this darkness. Psalm 30, verse 5 says, Weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Do you believe that God is good? Do you believe that he's good? I want you just to close your eyes with me for a minute. Jane Marchewski's experiencing the morning. 
God is the sun. He is the light. My sweet mother-in-law, Linda, is experiencing Jesus himself. And they see, oh, now it makes sense. Oh, now I get it. But in this broken world, in this, on this prodigal planet, we'll never get it. Remember, faith perseveres. Trials can't destroy your faith. They only show you your faith. And if your faith is crumbling, it's time to step in to faith. I don't want you to miss it. I don't want you to be one of those that Jesus says, I didn't know you. You thought you knew him. You went to church. You did so many good things for so many people. He goes, no, I want you to know me. I will allow the darkness so that you can know where your heart is. You really know him? He says, I left everything. And all I'm asking you is to reach for me and let go of everything else. Let go of everything else and reach for me. That's it. Come follow me. Father, we want to follow you. We want to be true believers and disciples of you. I thank you. I thank you that you meet us here. Some of us are going through some really dark times. Some of us, we call ourselves agnostic now because we've, we've just been injured. We've been hurt, our faith destroyed. I'm asking God in your powerful name that you would meet us here that you would enable us to step into what you're inviting us to right now and that it would be a forever relationship no matter how dark it gets, no matter what it looks like. And I thank you that weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Come kingdom of God upon us. Be done will of God over us and let nothing stop what you want to do in and through us, in Jesus' name, amen. We love you, community of faith. You have a great day.